Miss Burkett sits alone in her junior English class at Ben Davis High School. Her students are learning remotely the rest of the week because of staff limitations. It has a different feel to it. It's not as ideal, but for two days, it doesn't concern me. Every day you're just waking up and wondering, is it gonna be the day where school is shut down again? I don't reflect on it often because it has been so hard. Um, it is, I have to do whatever side opportunities present themselves, but then I had to choose, right, between whether I was going to um, be able to make the kind of money that we have to to maintain a life in Los Angeles, or if I was going to be able to sit there with each of my, each of my kids who were in very different places academically. And you feel guilty. I kind of started spiraling because I was like, uh-oh, it's happening again. So difficult to watch my kids struggle with Zoom learning um, that I just don't want to go back there. And I'm still seeing some of the mental health effects with my own kids, um, even now, months later, after they've been in school for months. You start to notice that the seventh grade is not where he needs to be socially for seventh grade. You start to notice that the first grade is not getting to be a first grader. And so really, my biggest fears are really around how much more of this can he take? 550 of our teachers absent. 216 of them were not filled with substitute teachers because we don't have the substitutes. We believe that our voices need to be heard. We don't feel safe in the school environment. Our cause is important to us for our safety, for our school safety, and for our teachers. And it needs to be valued. There's absolutely no social distancing happening. If we're old enough to choose what we want to do for the rest of our lives, once we're 18, I think we're old enough to choose what we want as a in our schools. I'm willing to sit down and entertain with the UFT if there is a way to do a temporary uh, remote option. We do have to be honest that there's a substantial number of children, for whatever reason, parents are not bringing them to school. I have to make sure children are educated. I'm completely open to figuring out a way to have a remote option. So, so there's no reservation for me at all. If I could figure out a way to do a remote option start tomorrow, I would. It, it's not quite as simple as that, but because you have to negotiate this stuff with the unions. Welcome to Journeys in Podcasting. Now in mid-January, many schools are negotiating a reopening after the winter break, all during the Omicron surge. Previous models for how schools would manage COVID spikes seem to have been thrown out. The new variant of the virus means new rules, apparently. But narratives are being manipulated by politics, policy, and parents. Like all of us, we want a return to normal, whatever that is. Everybody wants to be back in the classroom, but the battle is about how and when. Today, I talked to Dr. Tal Slimrod, who leads a research project tracking students, teachers, and parents about what they want in terms of face-to-face -face or different remote learning options. Uh, hi, everyone that's listening, and thanks so much for having me, Chris. Uh, so I'm an associate professor at California State University in Chico in the School of Education, um, and I also coordinate and founded the uh, Education Technology Distance Learning Certificate Graduate Program. I learned about you through a survey that was going out to, I guess, mostly higher ed. Uh-huh. Sorry. Uh, yeah, the, the survey is K-12 and higher ed. Okay, great. How did it get started? What was sort of the mission? Why, why did you do it? Just being a professor and predominantly most of my students are people that want to become teachers. 
So as I was working with them and teaching that with uh, teaching them, and I, I really like to say learning with them because it's, you know, I think learning is always a two way street and, you know, in the process of providing evidence based practices and strategies and just navigating the educational system. I, I learn with them and I, I learn from them. But, you know, a lot of them were struggling, especially once the pandemic really hit. I was just trying to guide my own pedagogy, my own teaching practices on how can I best support them? What are their needs? What are their struggles? What are their challenges in a lot of different ways? And so I kind of did this internal study with, with my own students and started to really see some trends. And so I got together with my co-researchers, Dr. Shelley Hart and Dr. Josie Blagrave, and we started thinking about these questions about how does this look like more broadly on the educational system? And are what we were seeing with our own students, is this the larger trend? Can we actually generalize some of these findings? And what we're finding is yes. Once we start talking about the survey, it really is actually the data really surprised me on how generalizable it is and the trends that we're seeing. You know, I, I come sort of older school ed tech. Uh, you know, there was like this giant hurrah in ed tech around 2006, 2010, more or less. And, mm -hmm. you know, we would just geek out on every new tool that was coming out. It's like every month something new was coming out. You know, when the Google Apps for Education came out, just the simple fact of getting to have live Google documents projected up in class, you know, this really opened up all kinds of cooperative learning questions for us. Sort of the zone of proximal development, you drop a new tool into the environment and where does that extend your reach and learning? And mm -hmm. so those were the kind of conversations we were having. Now let's fast forward to two years ago when we all start going online for COVID, my jaw was just dropping right and left. And I don't mean this as any mean or cruel thing to teachers or students or anyone else. I couldn't believe how unprepared we were, you know, just on how to use the tools. You know, we can get into kind of different ways that a tool lends itself in affordances. I, I was sort of shocked, just like, wow, these things have been around for a decade, you know, or all, not a decade, but like, you know, six to eight years. And yet when we all moved online, it was like we were kind of starting from scratch. What, what was your impression when that happened? When I started the certificate program, I worked with um, really just my fabulous leaders in, in my department and in college where with my, um, and I'll have to give a, a shout out to uh, my deans, uh, Debbie Summers and Angela Trethaway and uh, uh, the chair of my department, Rebecca Justison and Claire Van Ness, who runs the regional continuing ed for the university. I approached them and said, I, you know, teachers, teachers don't know what to do. They, they, they know how to teach, but they don't, they're really struggling navigating this online world and navigating these educational technologies. Can we, can we provide some professional development for them? We decided like, okay, let's offer a course. And then that broadened, broadened out to a course series. And we had hundreds of teachers reach out to us once we said that we were going to be doing this, sign up for our, 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 our initial crash course. And we actually had, it was international for the number of teachers that reached out to us. Because like, like what you were saying is that um, we've been having these technologies and we've been putting them in the classroom. But I think um, two things, one is a lot of these technologies, and I, I'm gonna say more broadly, people, policymakers, admin, and again, no fault of their own, but a lot of people, I think, were thinking that these technologies were silver bullets, right? This is what's going to really um, improve the educational system. And when they're not, they're exactly, as you mentioned, they're tools, right? They don't replace pedagogy. They don't re 
replace good teaching. Good teaching is good teaching is good teaching. Um, whether you have the technology or not, it's just additional tools that can provide access for, for kids. And that's what technology does. So yeah, so I, that's, that's what we saw too. And that's what I saw is a lot of teachers really needed help navigating how do we take some of these tools? How do we take, you know, Google Suite or Google Classroom or just simply the Google Docs of Google Suite and use that in the classroom? What are the benefits of it? What are some of the challenges? And really, how do we, how do we navigate that? And, you know, the educational system is like any major system. It's to move it. It's like, you know, moving like, you know, a huge cruise ship or a nuclear, a nuclear powered, you know, destroyer or, you know, aircraft carrier. It, it takes a lot of energy and it, it's pretty slow. Just like any system, the educational system had to, had to do that in, in a dime and it, it really struggled, which is understandable. The nice thing is, is we had some of these tools uh, the challenge was how do we get these tools implemented appropriately and actually use them appropriately? And I think we're still dealing with that challenge. So maybe you saw an interview with a principal from the Bronx and his take was no one's coming to help you. And we have no intention of going back online because in his words, there never was a plan. I know from watching teachers and from being a part of it myself, it was a complete shit show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes, that it was. And I, like I said, I don't mean that as criticism to anybody. He, he was right. There, there wasn't really a plan. And one of the things that shocked me was, well, one, yeah, like you were saying, like everybody wanted to get, you know, at least up to par on how to use a lot of these things. But then a lot of people never, ever have taken online learning very seriously. You know, this was just some other weird loop that we're jumping through. Or you had a teacher who had strong constructivist values and beliefs. And yet when you move it into a learning management system, all of a sudden they became this very task-based one assignment at a time, you know, seesaw kind of one thing at a time, even though seesaw, I'm not sure if you're, you're familiar with that, but it's more for the younger kids, but it has a canvas application in there. And if you use the canvas application, it can be very much like a, a playground project space. You know, you can just kind of keep this thing open. You can be giving feedback in live time to kids work. It can be used. And yet the way I saw most people using Seesaw was just a million assignments. And so a kid would open that thing up and just be like a playlist. Da, 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 da. And it was you know, just kind of exhausting for the kid to have to keep up with this constant moving um, treadmill that was going for them. Now, I'm sure some people were doing amazing things, you know, with these canvas spaces. That's, you know, where I was, was kind of hitting a wall. Most enlightened thing I had was sitting with some Reggio Emilia teachers that are at the um, Dewey School in Chicago. And they really thoughtfully, like when they put tool into that Reggio Emilia environment, they walk 360 around it. They think very carefully, what is this thing allowing our kids to do? How does this fit into our theory of learning and pedagogy? But that was an exception. Most people I saw was, hate to say it, but it was kind of a dumbing down of their best teaching. So yeah, I hate to be so negative about that because I loved it. I loved the online learning experience. I thought it was so cool to get to play with all of these tools that we have had for a long time. We started a TV program that was, you know, we would just kind of be collecting crowdsourced clips from all over the school, package them up. And then every couple of weeks we'd put out this program. So like there's all these fun things you can do in the space, but I also understood that we were just sprinting ahead and that wasn't being mindful of this giant ship that needs to, needs to turn. So anyway, that brings us back to this kind of current moment where we're sort of in some ways back where we started 
in that a lot of people still need to go online. A lot of the schools where I am right now are, uh, we're facing Omicron spikes just like the states. And a lot of schools have taken at least a week to kind of, you know, test everyone, see where things lie and get their plans together. But I also understand that a lot of people are still dealing with square one of we don't have devices and we don't have the networks for the kids. Let's bring that back into your survey. How did you make these decisions on as far as what to put on the survey? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that we thought about for the survey and similar to the things that you just actually talked about, even with thinking about the theories of how people use the technology. So you have, where are students? Where are universities? Where are school districts? One thing is you have to think about for the digital divide, where people are and what access, as you mentioned, do they have to high-speed internet or, or broadband? So are they in a rural setting? Are they in an urban setting? In both of those settings, there's a digital divide, but for, you know, for similar and different reasons. For example, in a rural setting, they might not have access to broadband because Comcast or Charter or Verizon, Wi-Fi or whomever, you know, AT&T, they obviously for a good reason, for understandable reasons, don't have high speed lines going out that far into the rural areas. Uh, in, the, in the urban areas, technically you might have the physical infrastructure for high speed internet, but now we're talking about large amounts of uh, individuals and families and populations where they don't have the means to that infrastructure. Maybe they're renters and it's not allowed. Maybe they're renters and the previous tenants didn't pay the bill, right? Mm-hmm. For, for that high-speed internet, for that cable company. And now there's a block on that. And, you know, the cable company saying like, okay, well, we can, you know, take off the block for high-speed internet, but that's going to cost paying for a tech to come out, out and it's going to pay, you know, a late fee. And they don't have, you know, hundred dollars, two hundred dollars laying around. They they're they're really living paycheck to paycheck. So you might not you might have that. Um, they not might not be able to actually physically afford um, the, the modem or the router or the computer. Even if let's say um, in the, for example in LA Unified where they're given they're, they have a one to one computer program where students are given either Chromebook or iPads, um, and that's how it is. For a lot of places in urban settings, that, that's great and all, but if you're given a Chromebook, Chromebooks need internet. Mm. So, okay, so congratulations, you have a Chromebook, you're taking it home. Now, what are you going to do with it if you don't have high-speed internet at home? So we have you know, different reasons for the digital divide. And of course, from there, we can break it up into even further into not only socioeconomic status, region, um, race and culture. And we see these fractures of the ability to be successful with the dependence of um, high-speed internet. Suburbs are kind of its own thing because... For the most part, people that live in suburbs have generalized, you know, g- generalizing here, but you have both the financial means to afford the high-speed internet, because it's not a utility, whether it should be or not, that's another discussion, you know, and you have the physical infrastructure, but in, specifically in the rural and the urban areas, you have these, these real challenges that, that affect a lot of people. So we had that, thinking about that when it comes to it. Then, of course, we have the K-12 setting and then the higher ed setting when we, in our survey, we put them together, but then we can also break them apart once we start doing, really doing the analyzing, which I've started to do. You've definitely zeroed in on the digital divide part of, of- systems and you know the analysis of, of who's got what as far as network goes as far as who needs tools it's not cool if they're all logging on their phone like having access to a proper computer you know opens up a lot of other abilities to do things online as well 
you know, there's the other digital divide, and, and that is more the one of access to a teacher and a community of learners around you that know how to learn in these kinds of spaces. And I, I think there's we can split that in a couple of ways, and one just might be access to a constructivist dialectic kind of environment, which I was not exposed to in school. I mean, I got that from family and maybe a little bit from church or something, but really had not been exposed to like what a real Socratic dialogue was until I got to college. Small seminar courses in a liberal arts school changed everything because now mm -hmm. I understood like, oh, well, this is what, you know, real, this is how you interact with a text. This is how you interact with others. This is why we come into a classroom and discuss. So to put that into a digital space, let's take like an edX course or a Coursera sure. course. If you take one of these by yourself, and you don't know what to do, it can just be a, a kind of dynamic curated list of readings and activities. It could almost be asynchronous completely. It won't be that, that different, but those that know how to work in those kind of environments of how to make groups online, how to make those connections. And I believe the research has pointed again and again to the ones who get the most out of those online experiences are the ones who do it with people in their direct physical environment. They make groups, they take the course together, and that seems to like lead to the most amount of, of people finishing the course and, and producing the best work out of it. So if students don't have that kind of access, that's a much bigger thing, I think, because that goes beyond your capabilities with the device. So I'm breaking apart kind of Gibson's affordance sure. right now. Like your experiences, like, do you have experiences with this kind of technology? What are your capabilities with it? But the much bigger thing is like, what are your beliefs? And then how does that affect how you set goals with that kind of device. So I mentioned the Google Doc thing before. It's great that people know how to open a Google Doc and know how all of these things function. It's kind of like a, the Gates dream that we're all gonna become PowerPoint users and Microsoft Word users. But the bigger thing is like, wow, this thing is live and collaborative. How does that change things? And it's asynchronous. So we can all jump on here at any time. So those are the kind of learning environments that I'm, I'm kind of talking about. And so when you talk about like getting teachers up to speed, how do you approach those much bigger theory of learning kind of things? Yeah, I think what's interesting, what the pandemic showed and where as a system we're still grappling with, and I think we're struggling, is how do we define community, right? And when we're thinking about the, tradi the traditional classroom, we think about it as, you know, desks and about 30 kids in rows, raising your hand, right? Which may or may not be an appropriate learning system for a lot of kids. But that's kind of what we think about when we think about a learning community, when we're moving online, how do we define that? Right. And um, what I think the missing piece to this is the traditional classroom works for a lot of kids, but not all. And I would say, you know, if we're thinking about a, a multi-tiered level for just plain hands down, it works well, we don't need to do anything extra. It works out for about 80% of kids. And then we can move up from there, some more group interventions or individual inter interventions. And once we do the intervention, individual interventions, that's usually our kids that need behavior plans or on need special education services. Mm -hmm. um, but then let's, let's think about moving to the online community. How does that work for kids? And what, we're, what we know is for a lot of kids moving to a different, I mean, you can't, for those of you that are listening, you're going to see me doing my quotes um, <laughs> that, you know, as we move to a different system, as we move to a different modality, how does that shift of who can be successful? And 
for a lot of kids that might not fit and learn best in this traditional setting might learn better in this online modality. Maybe it's a kid that is in special education that really thrives in uh, a community where they can have these these mutual interests, like for a kid maybe that's on the autism spectrum, has autism spectrum disorder, and really thrives in these types of gaming communities. Um, for, For them, this is their community, right? Versus in this neurotypical classroom, where they're really sticking out and they, they don't fit. Now we're moving them into really an area of a community or a classroom where, where they can thrive. So I think we really have to be careful of thinking about what does a community or what does a classroom look like? And if we move start moving things into a different forum or a different modality, how does this affect what, of what benefits or challenges other kids. And I think this is where, again, we, we start to, and I think I mentioned it in, in one of my Twitter posts or something like that, where we need to get, a, I think we really need to move away from this two-dimensional idea of what learning or classroom or community is, whether it's only this traditional, you know, in the classroom face-to-face or behind a computer, which isn't necessarily great for most kids either. There's this space in between, or I'd say even a third dimension where we can think about other forms of online learning. Can we get kids to do online learning away from their computer? Uh, for example, podcasts, right? And um, for my own students, that I, when I teach them asynchronously and synchronously, I, I remind them if they're if they're doing an asynchronous lesson where they're listening to a podcast of mine, but if it's specifically for for class, I call them pod classes. Then go ahead and take a walk, go for a drive. You don't have to be stuck in front of this computer. And I think you know, going back to our original conversation of this idea of what do we do, right? We can't in the Bronx, like you're on your own. Well, you're on your own, but we don't necessarily need to have kids stuck in front of a computer doing this two-dimensional, being unengaged and doing this same type of Canvas style learning day in, day out, because that's not how, that's not what we would be doing if we were coming up with appropriate lessons and to meet objectives anyways in the classroom. I hear you wholeheartedly. And I'll just add a couple of things on there. These aren't even questions they're just sort of add-ins to what you're talking about. And I mean, one of them is, is it always, I always look for who the gamers are in the classroom because Early on, even if just Minecraft on an iPad, that kid has capabilities that are real tools and he is now a you know, distributed learning piece in the classroom. I have spent, I mentioned before we started recording that I had spent summers in New York and uh, often around this ITP camp. And when they did it online, it's pretty weird because it's, like it's like a maker space, you know, high tech thing, very lab learning and very distributed brain. Like you may not know how to do something, but you can sit next to this person and then you can work wonders together. And so what I was shocked at is like, I guess New Yorkers in general, at least my experience is a gross generalization because of this compact environment, because of all the universities, because of all the industry and creative industries that are are there, there's a lot of this cooperative effort built in that people are very comfortable entering spaces and immediately kind of picking up and plussing and constructing with others that blend straight into the online space. The people I was around when the, pan- when the lockdowns hit, they were just online all the time, but doing very dynamic, very interactive things online. In the conference space, it was super interesting because everybody was doing different things like you're talking about. They took the learning to a park. If this seminar, they didn't need to be actually building anything, they may just go sit in a park or you, you know, you'd be talking to someone and they're walking around with trees behind them. So it really lent itself this learning is everywhere kind of thing. Or I'm sure you know Mike Wesh, who publishes and writes on this idea of creating the digital classroom. 
and he does exactly what you're talking about, whereas he, he lectures via podcast and he encourages students to listen to the podcast as they're doing other things, as they're moving about the city, as they're maybe doing some kind of procedural manual labor, like folding laundry or whatever. And then meanwhile, he lectures on his breaks during a jog around the city. So he'll go from park to park, stop, and then he'll give a 15 minute talk and then jog and give another part of it. So the podcast has this like weird element of of movement to it as well. So I think that's brilliant. And I guess the, the third one, or there's actually two more that I was going to say. One was watching my wife work with one-on-one special ed and how cool it is when they are both working on the same interactive canvas. So she might open up, explain everything or other whiteboard app, but through the interactivity with Zoom, the student and her are working literally on the same text annotating, highlighting, talking about the whole time. So it's kind of like your hands are in the same, you know, interacting off of the same plane, so to speak. I thought that was very, very cool and lent itself to kind of something that you might not be able to do even in the physical classroom. And then the last one was uh, Reggio Emilia had a series of seminars when the pandemic had started and they were very, you know, Reggio Emilia is very early childhood. It's very embodied cognition, experiential learning and very nature-based. And so what they were kind of lamenting at the beginning was like, oh my God, the kids are going to have this disconnect from nature until they realized they can celebrate small nature. And they found having kids investigate their own environments and finding where things are growing between cracks or where there's a house plant or, you know, and documenting that and making that part of the learning trajectory that learning, as you're saying, we come pre-programmed that it has to be in a classroom, sitting at a desk, it has to happen this way, but it can actually happen anywhere. And that is what this online experience should be opening up. And yet we glue everyone to the screen the whole day. <laughs> yep. Sorry. And, you know, and, and I think it's, it was, you know, how it happened is understandable, right? We like, we, we had, you know, we, most kids had these Chromebooks or iPads and leadership admin, administration. They tried to figure out what's the what do they have and what can they do. But I think the difference is right now is you no, know, especially with the current way that we the, the pandemic is going, is moving things online isn't necessarily the same as it was when the pandemic started. Teachers aren't from starting from ground zero and. You know, I'd say um, many teachers still probably feel that they need support in technology. And as we hear it, you know, I'll bring it up. I have the numbers. But, you know, as I'm I'm looking right here, where do where do people really feel like they they still need support when it comes to technology? So, you know, about 34 percent still feel like they need support. In, in, in the classroom, just right under that, just about a little over 30% of families still feel like they need technology at the home. So, you know, even though that's about seven, I'll just say, you know, two thirds, 70% for either of them, that's, that's really good. That's progress compared to probably where we were, you know, when the pandemic started. But if you're thinking about 30, 35% of, of, of people that still need support with technology, we're still thinking about quite a large number of yeah. people that, that still need that support. But we're not where we were two years ago. And um, where are we, where we hope we would be? No, but we probably also didn't think two years later 
would still be having this conversation. I, mean, I don't think we were. Well, yeah, I mean, I think we, we were also saying maybe this is this is beyond our, our pay grade or even our ability to decide. But there's a lot of politics around all of these decisions. And I mentioned that the Virginia elections, I think, were a giant shock to a lot of Democrats. Um, and so mm-hmm. I believe you know, having a Democratic president right now that this decision was made pre-December break. It was everything is going full on and we are pushing full on face-to-face school and no questions asked. I think there's sort of an information mechanism behind that. You can kind of trace New York Times articles back over the last months. And it, it you know, everyone's sort of been, been building up to this. But you know, the, the fact of the matter is like parents need to get back to work. People are frantic. They don't want to teach their kids at home. They want to get back to some idea of, of normal. Unfortunately, Omicron, you know, I was just reading this morning or late last night. It's like, it took us two weeks opening schools in January to realize that we cannot force our will on science, that now schools are realizing we have to have some online period still. Coming back around to kind of the more constructive part of this conversation is this idea that I think you, you said it, is that we are at an unprecedented moment in ed tech culture in schools, that never before have we had this many teachers, this adept and have this many experience and capabilities built up around these set of tools. And that could be your learning management system, could be your video conferencing stuff, could be your whiteboard app that you use to give more dynamic lessons, or it could be the strategies you've learned of how to get kids up and moving around. We have learned a lot. I mean, a whole lot. Teachers are doing some pretty amazing things. We had an art teacher and a music teacher that just full on created these super dynamic lessons and they were interactive. That's not going to happen again, probably, and I hope it doesn't happen again in our lifetime. And I feel like we're sort of letting that just go and that everyone's down, on, everyone's you know not happy about the online learning experience. But I'm like, yeah, but now is the time we need to bring that stuff back into the classroom. Yeah, I mean, I saw an op-ed in, I think it was the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, and it, and I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on exactly the title, but it was something like, we need to get back to normal or something like that in that, for the education. You know, it really, it rubbed me the wrong way because there, we're not, our new, our normal is going to be a new normal. And so how do we go about taking the best of what we are learning in the educational system and these tools, uh, especially around education uh, technology, but just also teaching as a practice and learning uh, as, as a practice. And how do we establish this as a new normal? Uh, because we're not, gonna, we're not going back to normal. That, that, that's a, that's a, a false hope. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. As I was saying, the traditional classroom doesn't meet the needs of all, stu- all students. And uh, education should be individualized. Um, when we're thinking about the educational system. And so how do we take these things that we've been learning on how to do when it comes to educational technology, when it comes to just teaching practice and and bring that into into the forefront of the new normal? And I I think that's hopefully what this survey is doing is being the conversation piece, initiating this discussion. So as we're transitioning into this next stage of the pandemic, or hopefully maybe, you know, out of the pandemic, how do we take these lessons and, and challenges and, and come up with something better that's really going to be, I don't want to say a solution, but really the next stage of our educational system. So what have you found out? Well, you know, the, the data for me was 
pretty surprising. And I'm going to do some broad generalizations here, but I feel like I can do this. I have over 500 people responding to my survey and um, not to sound too nerdy, but that gives me a confidence index of 95, over 95% with a 5% margin of error for, for those of you that are thinking about my N values and, um, <laughs> and stuff like that. But, um, so if, we're, if, if I'm clumping the educational system, parts of the educational system together, so I'm, I'm clumping eight, you know, K-12 together along with higher ed, the data somewhat surprised me. I was expecting, based on what you hear from policymakers and news that people really wanted to be back in the classroom right now. And that's really just not, <laughs> not the case. Um, we find my graph here. So, you know, predominantly most people, you know, are teaching face-to-face, which is what we would expect. If we're thinking about how people are teaching and learning, really <laughs> only a quarter of people, about 25.1% of people want to be face-to-face during, during the pandemic. So you're talking about policy. This is data that's been collected. Let's see, we started collecting it pretty soon after the fall semester started. And we, we had decided to close it because we thought after the Delta wave, uh, we thought, okay, it's over. We, we have our, our pretty good numbers. And then Omicron hit and we decided to, we had to open it back up so we could start to see, you know, how Omicron was uh, changing these trends. And I was about to say, can, can you, um, I mean, I'm sure you have many ways to parse out the data, but I would be fascinated to know how it's changed over the last two weeks, particularly. Uh, I can. Um, so let's, you know, I'm, I'm bringing up my messy Excel sheets here in real time. So let's take a look here. And just give that some context, like, I've been fascinated by the the student protest. You know, you've seen Chicago and Boston, New York and, and Oakland and other places as well. And to me, the strongest, you know, everyone has the mantra for the children, for the children. But when the children are the ones saying, hey, this doesn't feel safe, maybe that's a, a bigger thing. And, and their overriding message, too, was I want to be face to face. So the teachers um, want to be face to face, and yet it doesn't feel you know safe right now. And I think the right. data is now coming out that um, schools are actually spreading COVID. So they're I would I'll, I'll say that since Omicron started, my numbers aren't strong enough. Just specifically looking only at Omicron to be able to say like I can generalize this right because again, it all depends on my sample size. If I'm looking at how the trend has been shifting since really since. Omicron started, it's predominantly almost all the people that have taken, filled out my survey, uh, except for a random couple have all signaled that they want to be some form of online. And, and, and I think, that, you know, that's like, as you said, when we're looking at what people are, you know, just looking at the news articles, we could look at the trends, right? So you, Bronx, Boston, I just saw an article, um, Seattle, is another one that's joining where students are really pushing back. <laughs> now we're seeing this go international. It's just in France, teachers are pushing back. The, the data and what we're seeing in the news is, is, is starting to support each other where, you know, people, people are scared and, you know, there's a mental health crisis that has to, has to do with it. Um, this idea that everybody need, we need to keep schools open. Sure. <laughs> in theory, you know, it's like, yes, parents need to work. I'm a parent. I have the privilege of, of working from home and we've, we had to pull both our kids out of safety because our younger isn't uh, isn't old enough to be vaxxed yet. It's hard. It's really hard. You know, I think people want this flexibility. Yeah. In the more idealistic COVID era, because I, I do believe in that first year we had all of this crazy idealism of like, oh, it's the humanity is one biomass. And now we're really in touch with what it means to the, like have viral connectivity to each other. 
And look, it affects all classes. It's erased all borders. And, you know, and yet now we fast forward to everyone on their mental health strain and, you know, parents have not radicalized and I believe I'm not knocking parents, but um, they have definitely pushed back very hard. And so if you're in a, a public school that can be horrendous in the, in the battle between the unions and the parents and, and whatever other interest groups in the private sector, if your school is closing and yet the other private school down the street is staying open and, you know, parents are pulling their kids out and putting them in other schools right and left. And so it's a competitive market who can keep the classrooms open. I don't appreciate the canary in the coal mine of just because we all have our vaxes and our masks that we're all just going to go into the biggest Omicron spike, which is by far surpassed any other spike we've seen. Let's bring that back down to earth in what you were talking about and this idea that there have been hybrid options in the past. You know, Harvard Business School is one of the earlier pioneers. They have some very high tech stuff of, you know, students have been on panels and they've had this interactivity of the online and the physical going for a long time. So we can't all be that high tech and have all that kind of training and equipment. Do you see this possibility that we could be offering hybrid model all the time? You know, one thing is, and I think this is one area where um, this idea of keeping everybody in school came from is hybrid is really hard. I don't have specific data to, to back this up, but you know, in, in my mind as a former classroom teacher and now as a professor, face to, I'd say face-to-face -face is probably, I don't want to say the easiest, but it's the simplest, because this is what we're trained at, we're, how we're trained. We're, we're tra as educators, we're trained to be in the traditional classroom. Mm. From there, I'd say probably, you know, asynchronous or synchronous might be, but some form of event, I would say hybrid is probably the hardest <laughs> after that, because you're, you're, you're doing both. But there's so many different ways to do hybrid. So there is this one way where you're doing some kids are online, some kids are face to face, and you're kind of doing this balance back and forth. And a lot of a lot of teachers were doing this, but then there's there's other forms of hybrid, right? Where you're doing some some face to face, on, um, whether it's on Zoom or in person, and then some other forms of asynchronous, right? That's another form of hybrid. So we get challenged when we start to get get into this two dimensional form of education that it's behind a computer screen or or face to face. For me, it, nobody's asked me yet, and <laughs> maybe they'll hear this and ask me. But I think when we're trying to reopen schools, we need to think more broadly, right? So yes, there are going to be some, you know, twenty five percent of the population that that need this face to face learning. Parents, maybe it's to, it's a political per, you know, perspective. Uh, maybe it's just parents do not have the ability to, or guardians do not have the ability to be home, right? They're, they, you know, they need to work. They don't have the, the ability to be a caretaker. So how do we keep this traditional mode of instruction for those families and kids that need it, right? But at the same time, how do we broaden this educational community, this, this system into different modalities where we can individuals and kids and families where they are, yeah. right? So how do we start looking at different forms of hybrid education? And that's going to look very different from, you know, one classroom or one school to, to the other. If they have, like I, we were talking about the digital divide, do they have broadband at home? If they don't, that's fine because we know where there's asynchronous ways we can do, do this. So how do we start taking these, these different modalities, these different tools and really embrace them into the current, even Omicron right now? Right. Yeah. So when we're thinking about we need to open all schools. Right. Well, is that even possible? Right. From a health and safety perspective, is that what people want? My data clearly says 
no, which surprised me. But then, okay, if that's not what's going to be the best for learning, right? Because now we're going to have 10 kids out sick anyways. So it's not like we're even having the kids there to begin with. So now a teacher, if they're even there because of their own health, well, now we're doing patchwork anyway. So it's the, the educational system of trying to fit everything back into this form of normal, as we were talking before, isn't working. Yeah. Okay. I, I hear you. We know how to use slide decks. Many of us have had experience using things like Nearpod, where you can literally sure. create a synchronous, asynchronous lesson, participate however you want. I mean, for some project work where I was working with multiple teachers, with a lot of students, things like that just came in, they were golden because then you could have, you know, in your slide deck, you can insert slides. You can always be sort of showing this is a malleable process we're going through. But if, you know, the slide deck is, makes it so you can move around different spaces within the school, go online, teach off the same thing. You know, there's a million things you can do once you have that kind of format for teaching. I think a lot, a lot of teachers are not so comfortable with that. Uh, sorry, I'm jumping around, but like the online experience for me was actually the greatest because slide decks can be very time consuming to construct, but when you can just open up five windows on the fly and through Zoom be teaching off of a different screen, you know, every few minutes, amazing. <laughs> you know, sure. so like a Google doc is your lesson. You don't have to like spend a lot of time making these other things. Um, right. And so like, I think comfort with those kind of tools of realizing you're not even working off of one application, you're working off your entire computer. I think that is one of the giant eye-opening of having to do all these things is like, maybe we need to stop even thinking about, you know, the LMS or Google Apps for Education. You're working across whatever you can pull up on your screen. But anyway, to, to make the, the long story short, it's like, we can't expect every teacher to create Khan Academy. You know, it took... It took Khan a long time to make all of those videos, sure. but I think we can borrow from a lot of these kind of flipping strategies that like, hey, there's stuff that kids can do from home. Or, I mean, if teachers are up for it, what I would recommend is have what you call like the big rock rituals and routines. And these are things that are always the same throughout the year. And so for me, one of them was a read and response letter. Well, a read and response letter is something the kid writes every week about whatever they're reading. And you might have some kind of stipulations like, please access, you know, this kind of knowledge this week, but then that's only for one part of it. And you can write about whatever you want, or you can keep it completely open. But the idea is that you can funnel any kind of content and thinking through the read and response letter. But the idea is the ritual stays the same. And then right. you build your ritual about how I respond to these. For me, it's take five a day, go an hour and spend time with them get your, you know, meaningful inputs and responses to them. And then the very next day you have to conference with each student so that it's like an immediate kind of response thing. Well, that's something that if you had established in your classroom, it would transfer directly into the online space as well. So that if you did go online for two weeks, like we're seeing now, things don't fall apart. Things just keep rolling. Right. And I think, you know, and I think one of the challenges and unfortunate things that happened was um, as a teacher educator, you know, the thing that I, I one of the things that I just I completely uh, try to emphasize over and over is, you know, what's the objective, right? Mm -hmm. As a, you know, and as a teacher, you know, I think it's one of the things that we are so good at is to meet objectives, right? So what's the objective of the lesson? And I think as soon as we start moving away from that, because we're trying to teach something that we have done in the classroom, but put it into a different format, that doesn't fit. So essentially we're 
bashing this, you know, square peg into a round hole, we lose sight of the objective. But if we can take, you know, this, this read and write, for example, and transfer it, then we're not losing sight of this objective. So, you know, and, and all we're doing is we're shifting modalities, right? And we can be flexible within that. Um, we can, you know, and then we can be flexible. So, okay, so we need to be able to do some type of feedback. Let's say we're talking about your, this read and write. Okay, so if the objective is to um, read something and then write and reflect, interpret. Okay, so that's the objective. So we, we write, great. We can do that synchronously. We can do that asynchronously. We can do that through text message, right? Unless in this, in, in my mind, if this is something that we don't necessarily need APA format or in the high school more so MLS format or Chicago, you know, then okay, then then great. That's we're still meeting the objective. Mm. So let's be flexible in, in in how we're meeting that objective because the objective isn't changing. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you, and, and I think you know anything I add to that is maybe like. This idea of getting past this task base one square at a time, we teach kids that schooling is about just completing all of these tasks. Whereas mm -hmm. like if you elongate your learning products, make them week long things, or maybe even two week long things. Now you've got something that you can really play with the formative. Okay, well, let me open up your blog or your Google doc or your commonplace notebook or whatever your canvas is and you can check in with kids and then conference with them. And then those can be things that you do in live time, or you could also do that kind of stuff in, in the digital space as well. Maybe one other thing, and it's just like, you mentioned it before, but this idea that any experiential, any physical becomes digital the moment, the moment you take a picture of it, or you know, the moment you show a video clip, like that is something that we need to like, like bring in as well. Like hand, handwriting stays, in my opinion, all the way until middle school, like until kids type 26 words a minute, then they should be writing. But then how do we deal with all that writing in the digital space? Well, kids need to be able to photograph or work on, you know, some kind of document camera so that we're still validating all of those physical modalities of, of reading and writing as well. Sorry, let's go back to the data. Sure. Is this something that you would want schools to try at a localized level, like just among their community members, is this something that you want to do nationwide and become the advisor to the Department of Education? What What is your dream? Like about help us all, but um, <laughs> you know, but like for me, I think what we're losing track of is, and especially even in higher ed, is where we're supposed to be the epitome, the epitome of making database decisions, right? And really studying this and, and and guiding policy from data. And I feel like we've kind of, I don't want to say as a nation, but as a system, we've kind of lost track of that. And we're, I don't know if it's because of, you know, the Virginia election, as you mentioned, but somewhere along the line, we've gone off track. And, you know, through this data, I really, I hope that we can take this data and it's not the solution. I have my ideas of what, you know, some solutions are, but we need to make some data-based decisions. And, and that, and that changes as, as time progresses, um, the data will change, but just to say, well, okay, well, that's what people want right now. Well, post COVID, you would think that everything would want about everybody would want to bounce back and it'll be go, you know, bring bring that data up. But that's not the case. Of course, when we're post COVID, we, well, we would take the data. Does it actually hold true? Post COVID, you would think that everybody would want to bounce back, but that's not the case. We're under fifty three percent of people want to go back face face to face. 
So I think people like the idea of having this flexibility, that they don't have to go back to this traditional mode that wasn't necessarily best for them. There's the social components to it, right? Where we, we talked about the social ideas of what a community or a classroom is. Well, that doesn't fit well for everybody. Some people want that flexibility of being able to work and learn from home. Again, going back to, we were talking about maybe a kid with autism spectrum disorder or using some other form of assistive technology, maybe even in, in higher ed, uh, now that they're at home, they have that less pressure of being in the classroom where they would probably maybe want to be maybe some of the time, but now they have access to taking more time to really learn the material and not feel this pressure to read and write in front of their peers in this time constraint. Maybe, maybe not, but, um, and I can say yes, but that's based on data from a different study. No, no, but, you're, you're hitting something about, you know, about schools, but there was something that came out this week, maybe Fast Company, about how work has become in this higher surveillance of online remote working, where we're all sort of, they have tabs on us now because we're always using our devices, we're always online. You know, we're not going to get into gaggle and all the kind of school surveillance in this talk, but the idea was that work has become very performative. And this is something that we, should talk about in school spaces as well, is that schools for a very long time have been performative places. And what you're talking about, like some kids can't perform on call. Right. You know, it's just, it's just not appropriate, but, and I can attest to this because I have seen it repeatedly as we brought in iPads and all these other modalities to capture kids' thought that some kids will take that screencasting software and go off and iterate and iterate until they get it perfect and then come back. And now you have an artifact that you can blow up on the wall and we can all talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden you have validated all this thought that the kid was producing, but in their own way, in their own time and not in the fishbowl of the classroom. Like the extroverted classroom works very well for certain kinds of students. Some students are just performative assessment people. And then some are definitely what you're talking about you know, they need their own loops and their own feedback loops and they can produce, but in their own time. Uh, so more of a special ed perspective. I would say in all of this online stuff, the two spaces are really in all education. The test of our things working is what's going on with the early childhood and then what's going on with your special services. Because if the special ed kids are not being successful, then, then something's definitely wrong. And so I think those are always two areas to watch. I have had the luck of working around people where the attention to the special service kids was was pretty amazing. Uh, but I know that hasn't been the case across the board through public schools and stuff too. So I, I hear you loud and clear. What what are some of the giant shockers in the data that you weren't expecting? Uh, the, you know, the biggest, I'd say that, like I said, the biggest shock probably was the number of people that want some form of online learning. So we can, if we lump hybrid and uh, synchronous and asynchronous of what they want right now, but then the biggest, bigger shock, I don't know, bigger, but big shock is also that people don't want to go back to full-time face-to-face. Why that is, I don't have the data. Is this mostly higher ed kids you're talking about? You know, it's, it's a mix. And I think if I start looking at how they describe themselves when it comes to disabilities and disorders, a large majority of people that have described themselves as having a disability and disorder. And I think they want their voice heard. And when it comes to their learning modality, their learning preferences, um, their needs, and I, I think people are finding ways that work best for them. Um, this high, whole idea of 
you know, uh, learning styles has be, has been debunked, right? Like I learned kinetically, you know, or visually or, you know, that's been debunked. But I think people do have their areas of comfort that works for them. And that's for a lot of different, you know, again, whether because they, they need um, asynchronous or synchronous or, 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 or yeah. something else. No, I totally hear you. I mean, I'm just a caveat on that. I'm a huge fan of Gardner. Frames of Mind is still art, mind, and brain. These are mm-hmm. still major inspirations for me. Uh, so I don't even associate that with learning styles. I think learning style was a particularly way that it was applied and marketed. Yes. So still right. It's, yeah, it was. To learn right. through, mm-hmm. um, you know, thinking of. It was, how- it was a marketing tool. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. But like, it's, you know, what you were saying, like we are, we are intelligent in different ways. And it's, that doesn't mean that you need to learn through a musical form or a kinesthetic form all the time. It means that those are tools at your disposal. And for me, the concept of, of bridging is, is very powerful. That when you put two intelligences adjacent, then sometimes the stronger pulls along the weaker. And we see sure. that again and again, special service kids, case in point, and the technologies show again and again it's like wow this kid's got some pretty amazing procedural knowledge and they can manipulate through this thing and now they're coaching the other kids like all of a sudden you have bridged two of the intelligences so absolutely and and we need to have this inclusive environment and we need to make sure that all our kids are inclusive in their learning and communicating and learning with each other but again where and how that looks i I think that's the part of the discussion is that does this where does where is this taking us yeah. Um, so this like fun part of data, because mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm, I, I like the data too. I, I mean, I, I find it very like, I just try not to fetishize over it, but I do, I do, you know, schools are always collecting all kinds of data. And then the fun part of it is how to humanize it. Like, how do we, how do we actually put this into our own faith belief system and then use our own intuition? We don't forget that we're still human beings. Data is always past. We're always planning future. How does this inform our best intuition, which is a dangerous word, but I think you know where I'm going. It's kind of like a design approach to it. Like, yeah, the data collection will always be there, but it's it's what how we interact around and what we do with it next. How, how do you coach teachers through that part? You said you've been a classroom teacher, so you know that data often becomes a kind of dictator. And then those that manage the data become the kind of like autocracy of the, you know, of the data. Like, you know, I think what we really need is this kind of facilitation around the data. How do we remember that the data is only informing us for our best next approaches? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's the this uh, challenge around data and producing it is then you can sometimes, uh, I'll probably stick my foot in my mouth a little bit, but, you know, but like get this top down effect, right? Like, okay, so you get, you know, I'll, I'll just say like Marzano, some big name, right? And like this, this, the way it should be. And then it goes this top down and the superintendents, you know, push down to the principals or the principals to push down to the teachers and say like, okay, now we're going to be taking, you know, our half day workshop and we're going to be, you know, everybody's going to be doing this one thing. And, and, and that's, that's not, again, that's not individualizing education. There are some, absolutely some strategies but data in my mind is again individualized so how this works how my data works best for uh, a school in the bronx is going to look very different than a school in rural montana 
right? Um, because their needs are gonna be different and their learning objectives and how they're gonna meet those learning objectives are going to be different. But I, I want my data to, to open that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we best going to be teaching our students, not only content standards, right? But then how do we teach them from a human perspective? How do we teach them for lifelong learning? And how do we meet them where they are, not only as a human, right, from this mental health and stress and perspective where they are right now, um, two-thirds of people that responded responded to my survey are in either in have started or in seeking or continuing mental health services, right? So there's this mental health crisis. So, and that includes kids that are in this mental health crisis, and that's been part of this push for putting them back into the classroom. So, so how do we get that conversation going to meet kids, families, educational systems, both on the large scale, but on the small scale, how do we support their objectives? Mm-hmm. What are their objectives? And then let's get this conversation started. Yeah. I would say, you know, why wasn't this done nationwide or, but I think we know the answers to that is that, is that this kind of data can be very transparent. And like you're saying, the fact that a lot of people would want to be online right now, especially during when there are spikes, it, I sort of was under this understanding and I think I misled myself into thinking that we're been preparing for these things, that when there will be a spike, we will go online for a week until things calm down. And then all of a sudden you're all essential workers and Omicron is the flu and get into the classroom. Like, like all of that was kind of very shocking. However, this is where data comes in and this is where the surveys can really enlighten like oh wow the majority actually prefer this but you know i think that's not what the economy is demanding and what the political situation is demanding and definitely what a lot of parents are demanding i mean i I think a lot of parents are also in this mental health crisis and they are at their wits end trying to juggle working full-time teaching full-time because many parents are doing a lot of teaching at home as well and stuff. Would you, are you trying to market this out as a tool to schools or is this more of a research and reflection project? Like where, where do you think it goes from here? As an academic, I'm a pre- professor, right? I, I have to publish, right? You know, that's, I don't want to say publish or perish, but but I have to publish it. And that's part of part of my job. And that's part of what I want to do. I will have multiple Excel sheets where I would be, or cleaning it up and putting it into SPSS and getting my publishing done mm-hmm. along with my co-researchers. But part of this was, I want to get some of these major findings out because the, the normal academic dissemination process can take years, right? Between analyzing and then writing and then getting it published and then you wait for them to publish it after peer review. Um, That can take a year, two years. This is pertinent now. And it would be as a leader in education, it it would be irresponsible for us to not look at this data and collect this data to make decisions in the now to benefit kids. Because at the end of the day, uh, the educational system, we, we need to support kids with their academics, with their mental health, with their behavioral needs. And so if we're not looking at this data now and it goes to a peer reviewed publication and then I take it to some conferences, mm-hmm. that's great. It helps me move up and, you know, move, move along in my academic trajectory, but it's not doing the main goal of why we got into teaching, why we got into education and that's for the kids. So that's, I, I want to, I want to get this, you know, some major findings out there so we can actually make some improvements. And again, it's, it's messy. We're moving a major ship slowly, but we need to, 
we need to make sure that we're moving it in, in the right direction instead of just full course straight ahead and you know really not doing the justice for families and kids that really need to happen. Everybody's been on survival mode and you know it's hard to take a step back or to step to the side and actually look bigger picture is is what we're doing working. I think that's that's a hard thing to do while you're in it. Football analogy while you're in the game, come to the side and start looking at what players are doing and, and adjusting your game on the fly. That's that's harder to do. No, I, I think there's just like the data desert around the whole thing. I don't know if it's by design or just that everyone is exhausted and things aren't running correctly. But I have seen in multiple posts today, people just frantically like, we're looking for data, we're looking for data. Personally, I'm like, you can't just throw everybody into schools as canaries and then say, well, we can't pull them out because we don't have the data yet. I'm like, yeah, there's definitely... Um, the students will create that data for you and their student protests, believe me. And so I, I think the gist of, of what I've been looking at seems to say that there's been a 48 hour period where people are starting to backtrack a little bit and started to vocalize like, hey, um, actually COVID is spreading in the schools and the online option can continue. And I know that here, one school opened up, shut down immediately, too many cases. Uh, another school uh, has taken a week at least just to kind of test and survey and, and feel the waters. And then I know the biggest school and not the biggest school, but uh, one of the major schools in Bogota, they had 37% test positive. <laughs> so like, you know, who wants to walk into an environment where you've got these kind of numbers? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the school district that was in the United States. And I, I, I don't remember which school district it was, but where, 30% of the students were testing positive, 10% of the teachers were out. And, you know, it was, it was really just, it was just a, a hard, hard situation. And I think, you know, I'm saying which school district that was, but I think that's probably <laughs> by and large, well, many I mean, school districts. I think, at this, I think there's probably this more. Point. I mean, I've also seen, you know, 95% of schools, according to the national data have, have gone back face to face. And so I don't know if what we're seeing is just pockets but I imagine, you know, this will play out over the next couple of weeks. There was a promising wastewater study done in Boston that says, mm -hmm. just as they predicted, that the spikes will fall as quickly as they rose. But yeah, I, I think your project would at least lend credence to like, it's okay to proceed with a little bit of caution. If we know that Omicron is spiking all over the place, then just flip the switch and let's go online. Yeah, and I, I think the two, the two things I would say to that is one, you know, I would say is if anybody was asking me, uh, and, and they might maybe as if, as my data gets out there, and, and thank you again for having me so I can have some of this data out there. I would love but, to send it to everybody. Everyone needs to look at it or make uh, their own version of it. Or you know. But I would say the one is, again, as we're flipping to some version of line uh, online to remember that online learning isn't two-dimensional. You can get off of Zoom, right? Um, and, and kids, they want to use TikTok, use TikTok, you know, whatever. But um, there's there's different modalities within online learning. Um, but then if we look about, you know, you're talking about some data that I haven't pushed out there, but I, I have it, is we're, we're looking at some this the satisfaction of the traditional classroom. And there's some similar data that came out of US, uh, USC, just to specifically look at mine. If we're thinking about, you know, how satisfied or how would you rate the traditional education delivery model or system uh, that's a face-to-face -face classroom for learning and teaching before COVID um, overall um, predominantly almost everybody was very satisfied with it you know 80 percent remember I said my 80 percent rule and there's your exact numbers about 80 percent it works for about 80 percent of people or uh, if we're looking at you know how satisfied are people currently during COVID satisfied um, how do they rate the traditional system 
it drops significantly. If we're looking at people that are really satisfied with it, have to really look at the the correlation of people that want face-to-face to answer this, but it's about the same number. It's about 26% of people currently are satisfied with the traditional face-to-face classroom environment. Hmm. Uh, people are not satisfied with, with the educational system as it stands. Yong Zhao, I think, has said, or don't let a good crisis go to waste in the education reform world, that every crisis is an opportunity to voice different ideas. And so hopefully, this is what I was sort of hoping at the beginning of the pandemic was, wow, this could really open people's eyes into all kind of different ways of doing things. So I hope that there's kind of a full circle kind of thinking around a lot of this online learning as well. Well, this maybe is a good, uh, I feel like we opened up enough topics here to talk for 10 more podcast sessions. Um, <laughs> sure, but, anytime. <laughs> but very, very cool that, you know, that you're sharing this data out and also, you know, just your perspective on, on special ed and like that we need to change up the modalities of how we teach. This is all great stuff to hear. Um, maybe just mention like, how do they follow up with you, find you, uh, chase the research with you. Um, sure. So, you know, as, as major findings come out, I think probably the easiest thing to do would be just to, to follow me on Twitter. And that's at Tal Slemrod, PhD, T-A-L-S-L-E-M-R-O-D-P-H-D. You can go to my the website, TalSlemrodPhD.com. I just got that up and running because in, in case anybody. This session was recorded on January 14th. Going through the edit, I can tell it's been a while since I've recorded sessions. And while editing, I was reminded to let the host speak. Anyone in schools right now knows these topics can get emotional very quickly. So maybe we all need a reminder that the last two years have been hard for everyone and that we all want the same thing, to safely open schools. More podcast sessions are coming up, so follow the cast on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you are listening to podcasts. In the next session, I'll talk to Serbst Salih of Sirkani Darkroom, a project that teaches analog photography to refugee children on the border of Turkey and Syria. Stay tuned. <laughs>